Over the next few years, artificial intelligence is going to spread into every part of our lives. And that's why this conversation is particularly important. I speak with David Shapiro. It's his second time on the podcast. David is one of the most inspirational and creative thinkers about the future of humanity. I highly recommend checking out his YouTube and Discord channels, both of which are fantastic and linked below. In this conversation, we chart an optimistic path forward through some of the most dangerous threats currently arising from artificial intelligence. It's a smooth balance of existential danger mixed together with exciting possibilities for the utopic future we might be able to create. I'm Shane Farnsworth, and this is the Escape Sapiens podcast, supported by the Andrea Von Brown Foundation. If you enjoy these conversations, you can help support them by liking, subscribing, and sharing. And now, it's my pleasure to bring you David Shapiro. I hope you enjoy. Escape Sapiens. So let's start off with generative AI. What is generative AI? And what impact is it going to have on truth and evidence and the narratives that hold our society together? That's a really big question to kick it off. Um, <laughs> I love it. Uh, so generative AI, like in a nutshell, is you compress as much data and information into a single model as possible, and then you ask it to regurgitate stuff. Um, that's kind of from an information perspective. That's like the simplest way I can put it. Um, and to give a little bit of context as to why I say that, uh, basically what you do is you train models and now we're getting into multimodal models, uh, but you give it as much data as you can. And I mean like terabytes of data, if not petabytes of data. And up till now it's been mostly text data, but now we're adding images, audio, video, uh, robotic embodiment data, even thoughts like recorded thoughts from MRI, from, uh, M not MRI, MRI images. Um, and so basically you just teach the model as much as you can and it compresses it all into a deep neural network and then it can spit out, you know, anything. We're still figuring out how to prevent them from hallucinating or confabulating, which is basically just making stuff up on the fly. I'd say that that's a kind of pathologizing and it's where I actually discovered creativity because, you know, creativity is basically you create something that doesn't exist. That's what a hallucination is. Um, but we're figuring out how to, how to keep them grounded in what we would call factual reality. But from an information perspective, it's just information. So the coolest part about all this in terms of narratives and internet and information and everything is that we now have basically a database for all information. Like if you use it correctly, and obviously there's still flaws because this is new stuff, but we have the ability to put all of human thought and philosophy and history and all the physics that we have and all the news that we have all into a single like you know entity or, or digital mind or whatever and that realization i don't think has dawned on most people yet and like that's the coolest thing about this technology now what that's going to do in the long run i think it's impossible to fully predict but you know like i've i've had conversations with with some of my audience where they say like Hey, like, you know, you just, you have an offline dictionary for all of, all of our knowledge and you don't even need the internet anymore. Um, and I, I was, I was joking around with some people saying that like, maybe this is how the cortical implants and the Borg work. Cause like the Borg have all the knowledge that all the, like one Borg drone has all the knowledge that all Borg have. And of course, like in a sci-fi perspective, like that sounds impossible, but actually now it seems like it's physically possible. So who knows how it's going to play out, but like, yeah, you can, you can basically have all of human knowledge in your pocket, um, or at least maybe not yet, but in the next few years. So uh, how it's going to play out is anyone's guess. 
But if I gave you two pathways that you could follow down, I can imagine two sort of scenarios. One where we become hyper protect protective of our data mm -hmm. and the other where we can generate any image, any audio. And so audio and imagery becomes completely untrustworthy. You, you can't tell whether that's a photo or something that's generated. And so to some extent, you can stop caring about the fact that everyone carries a camera around in their pocket. Which of these mm -hmm. do you think will go hard down one of these paths or? I think, I think uh, if you look at history as any example, it'll be both. Um, so I'm reminded of what's called yellow journalism. So basically, as soon as the printing press was invented, people started printing lies, right? People like, you know, the on the intellectual side, it's like, oh, we have this brand new invention. We can democratize learning and knowledge. And of course, what do people do? They start printing, you know, political lies, smut, whatever. People have always used technology for entertainment and misinformation and and also the good side. And I think that that's just human nature. Um, and, and I don't mean human nature in any sort of like abstract, you know, mythical sense. I just mean that like, we all have different agendas, right? We have different agendas, different beliefs. We all have autonomy and that's a double-edged sword. Um, and so, you know, it's, this is from, from that perspective, this is just another information technology. This is just another way of creating and formatting information. And, you know, like, you and I probably remember like uh, or in the early days of the internet, like don't trust anything you read on the internet. Um, but that's no longer true, right? Because we have developed mm -hmm. systems of trust and and we've learned how to engage with this information system that is in that is now more trustworthy, right? Like Cornell has their archive server. So it's like it's on the internet and anyone can go download mm -hmm. it. But there is a level of trust involved with that particular server or, you know, nature, you know, any any kind of formal publication that takes their reputation seriously. Likewise, I think that I think that we will have to adapt our relationship with various sources of information. So, for instance, there's going to be troll farms. There already are troll farms. There's going to be misinformation camps. But again, like this is nothing new in the human condition. Um, it's just this is a new vector a new way of generating it and detecting it. Um, and in the long run, personally, uh, I, I kind of feel like there, there's, there's going to be such a powerful impetus to, to really have the conversation as a species. What does truth mean? And I think that we're going to have to figure out what does truth mean and figure out how to articulate that and, and contextualize it in such a way that you will like, we'll have a better understanding of narratives. Uh, globally, because right now, most people's narratives are based entirely on their epistemic tribe. So epistemic mm -hmm. tribe is a concept of people that think, feel and experience similar things to you so that you understand them. Now, of course, there's millions and millions of epistemic tribes across the whole planet. And most people are members of multiple epistemic tribes. But I think that one thing that AI is going to be is like a forcing function that's going to make everyone confront the fact that they that we are members of a global epistemic tribe as well. At the grandest scale, we're members of a human species, and you might even say we're bigger than that. Like we're members of a of of a, a class of entity that is a thinking entity, right? Which we might have we might soon identify artificial intelligence or machines. As a, as a similar or parallel entity. And they're gonna have their own relationship to the truth as well. Um, so, but having these conversations is gonna be part of that new negotiation with this new technology. So right now, if we look at the early algorithms on Twitter and Facebook and, and these sort of social media sites, they get clicks from outrage, right? Mm -hmm. and, and so there's not necessarily any conspiracy at hand, but 
companies make money from creating division. Yep. And so the the early evidence is that when we're going to have trouble with uh, what the truth is, what, what gives you confidence that as we develop more sophisticated AIs, we'll head back in a positive direction as opposed to just further down the trail that we seem to be on? Yeah, so that that's actually a good that's a good angle to look at human nature. So it's not just outrage; um, it's it's everything to do with id. So whether it's rage, disgust, um, for men in particular, or people that are attracted to like visual sexual cues, like if anything makes you vaguely horny, like that gets more clicks too. Like there's plenty of of creators out there that like just arbitrarily like put a picture of their butt on their, <laughs> their on their thumbnails, and it gets more clicks from both men and women just because like there's there's all kinds of uh, things that we cue into um, consciously and unconsciously that get our attention. Um, now, obviously, things that are dangerous um, or disgusting, uh, that generates the like a stronger reaction than things that make you feel good. Like, I think there's been studies, obviously, studies vary, but in general, it's like you experience negative emotions three times more intensely than you experience positive emotions. So negative stuff does get more attention. Now, as to why I'm confident that we'll figure it out is because I think that I think at least from my perspective, we're already aware of the failures of of engaging with with media of all kinds, like, you know, outrage culture. And because young people today, by and large, do not watch cable news like cable news mm -hmm. is is like on life support, as far as I can tell. Um, and of course, like the. Uh, mainstream media, if it bleeds, it leads, you know, journalists calling that term like 50 years ago or more. Um, they and they that was just, again, tapping into human nature, which is we pay attention to dangerous things. And I suspect that that uh, increasing media literacy, increasing uh, information literacy, and also just some exhaustion around some of these things is like pushing more and more people away from it. And And you see where there's uh, AI is already being used for for media uh, like news aggregators that mm -hmm. automatically assess like what kind of bias does this media have and then it'll compare all the different narratives and I've actually consulted with a few people that are working on this from from various angles whether it's academic uh, perspectives or from a product perspective um, and there's a lot of people that want to solve this problem and uh, and I suspect that in the long run, people are going to be paying more attention rather to like, obviously, some people will always be addicted to outrage culture. Mm -hmm. That is probably just in, in some people's uh, nature or, or their preference, whatever. Like, it's not up to us to tell them that they're wrong. Um, but at the same time, there will be new tools available to those of us who just don't want to pay attention to that. And I think that also, as we have that conversation about truth, will probably also come up with new algorithms and new approaches to these narratives. So for instance, you know, people that interact with chat GPT, there's been a few papers that have already come out that say like, you know, interacting with chatbots changes your political alignment. Um, now, does it change it toward, does it, I think by and large, it kind of pulls people towards the center because it kind of tempers any mm -hmm. extreme views. Um, and, and as we interact with more machines, that don't have skin in the game, right? They're not emotional like mm -hmm. us. They just they're crunching numbers at the simplest level. I think that I think that being exposed to more ideas is going to have a, a, a tempering effect on on a lot of people. Now, obviously, some people are going to double down into their worldview or whatever. But having immediate access where you can have a thoughtful conversation with something like I I, I don't know. It just maybe I'm projecting my own experience, but like I find that that interacting with AI. 
on a regular basis um, gives me a, a more nuanced perspective on on everything. Um, and I, I, I hope that that translates more broadly in the world. I had not thought about two of your points before. So I suppose the first point is when we train these AIs, we take in huge amounts of data. And mm -hmm. so you, you get sort of an aggregate view of how humanity thinks in some sense, rather than these, these uh, extreme voices being highlighted. And then on the second side, on the, in, secondly, you, you have the situation where you get to mull over your ideas, speak your ideas in private to, to a certain extent with, without getting yelled at. And so you can actually crunch through your ideas and see whether they're good. Uh, those are the two points, right? Yeah, those those are those are some some key points, and and to the point about social media, AI is almost anti-addictive in my experience because like you know people are worried that like oh AI is going to make us dumber because you know we're just going to delegate to that. But honestly, the more I use AI, I get to a point where I've I have internalized the information and the knowledge and the skills, and then I don't need it anymore. And so it's like I'll build a cool AI tool, and I'll use it for a couple weeks, and then I don't need it anymore because I have learned. <laughs> And so, like, rather than having, you know, addiction mechanisms, uh, you know, like uh, attention engineering and stuff that social media does, because they're trying to maximize time on site, AI is expensive to use. If you pay for a subscription mm -hmm. to use AI, but then you don't actually use the inference tokens, like, that's good for the AI companies. And so, like, the economics of it are just fundamentally different. Like, if you pay for a chatbot that you need every now and then, and that it provides so much value that you're willing to pay $20 a month, but you only need it like, you know, a couple times a day. That is one that's good economics for the business because subscription models are really good for businesses, but it's also good for you. Cause like, here's an example of what I mean is I just built a very simple chat GPT set of custom instructions that literally its entire purpose is to figure out what you need and want to do right now. And so then after like 10 messages back and forth, it's like, oh, cool. Like I just figured out what I should do for the rest of the day. And then you turn the phone off. Um, so that's what I mean by like this technology has the potential to be like anti-addictive um, and and by tapping into having this more nuanced approach to like what you truly want and need rather than, you know, preying on, you know, the limbic system to hijack, you know, your your executive function. Um, I think that I hope that these kinds of products are going to be integrated into phones and other electronics where it's like because here's here's something that I, I proposed is what if you were to integrate this into your phone? Because most phones, like, you know, here's my Android, uh, you know, it's got digital wellness. What if you make the digital wellness apps that are built into all phones today more sophisticated and it says, hey, you're looking at a bunch of outrage stuff. Maybe go outside and go for a walk and calm down, right? Like you could have that setting in your phone um, and you can have an agent built into, you know, your smart home devices or your car or whatever that is there to help like be a concierge for like the information that you consume and how you engage with the world. Now, obviously this is like the most benevolent possible implementation. It could also be weaponized against people, but you know, I'm not gonna buy a product that weaponizes AI against me. I'm going to pay for a product that that uh, is beneficial to me uh, in the long run. I guess where I worry is that people don't want to pay for their products, right? We don't wanna pay for Twitter. We don't wanna pay for Facebook. And so those companies have to make money somewhere and mm -hmm. then, then the the infrastructure itself stops being so benevolent, right? So, what's the what is the payment plan? I guess that that's going to be successful for these benevolent sort of uh, approaches to AI. 
Yeah, yeah. Well, so in in some cases, if a if a product or service is compelling enough, then it is worth paying for. Just like electricity, for instance, and internet is so useful that you will you will absolutely pay for it because life is not the same without it. And I think that AI based services are going to basically become the next utility, right? It's going to be you're going to you're going to think of like whatever what however it ends up playing out you're going to have your subscription to netflix and your subscription to you know the ai and your subscription to internet like it's going to be like that level of of fundamental to to human life and because so here's another aspect of that ai uh there's there's a paper or a, an article that came out a few months ago um it was a leak i think from google that said uh they have no moat and neither do we and one of the things is because of the way that AI is built and trained, it's almost intrinsically democratic, which means that like the data that it's trained on is almost all public. Um, the the training mechanisms are all open source research that are you know done by Stanford and MIT and stuff. And so all the algorithms are free, all the data is free. The only thing you have to pay for is the initial training, and it then like once the model is trained, it's really difficult to keep it locked up. And so then, well, uh, so to your point, like, how do you make money with that? And it's kind of like, you almost don't. I think that I think that a lot of AI services are drastically overpriced still. And so mm -hmm. what we're heading towards is this like zero marginal cost where it's like, say, for instance, for the programmers out there, you don't have to pay to download a Python interpreter. Likewise, I don't think you're going to have to pay for the base model interpreters. Like if you th if you think of a language model as an interpreter, like it just makes perfect sense. Like, yeah, someone pays for it, but then like Python is so ubiquitous, it's totally free. I don't know the full economics as to why Python is free, but it is. And so I just kind of predict that like Meta producing, you know, Llama 2 and Llama 3, like they're just basically creating the next generation of interpreters and operating systems. And I think that there will be open source versions and closed source versions, just like you can pick Mac OS or you can pick Windows or Linux or whatever. You know, you're going to have a few flavors that you can pick from. Some are going to be paid with more features. Some are going to be free. But it's just it's such a fundamental paradigm shift in the way that we approach information and computing that you know like we're just it's we've only seen barely the tip of the iceberg not even that so far one of the areas where i i can see addiction creeping in is with with porn right so at the moment yep. people are talking about porn addiction and i can imagine a situation in the future where we have very sophisticated interactive relationships that people can have and sexual content that people can access uh, online now with LLMs taking over and, and as AIs become more sophisticated. Where do you see that story going? Do, do you think that is an area of danger and where we're going to see people retract from real relationships? You know, that has been a concern for basically since the dawn of civilization. Some of the earliest myths are about creating golems of various kinds. Uh, Pandora, for instance, was actually a golem that was created uh by by a god um and so the idea the idea of wanting to create something like us but that maybe doesn't have agency or doesn't have needs of its own or serves some instrumental purpose we have dreamt of that for literally thousands of years and i'm not sure why personally one thing that i suspect is that we have uh, we have such a strong impulse to to procreate to reproduce that this is just an expression of the desire to create something like us. Um, and so rather than, instead of having children, we're creating avatars. Cause like, think of it this way, our AI avatars could have any form factor, but we're deliberately creating stuff like us. Um, so that's, read into that whatever you will. 
Now, how that's going to affect our relationships, you know, certainly there's going to be there's going to be people that check out of, you know, the social social race. Um, you know, there's 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 all kinds of trends, you know, male loneliness is on the rise. Well, actually, I think loneliness in young people is on the rise by and large. Um, there's a term for it in Japan called hikikimori, which is people that are just totally checked out and like don't ever leave their bedroom because they are they feel like they have such low status. And this is, of course, an oversimplification, but that they just like they don't want to compete and they just kind of devolve into um, you know self-indulgence and, and escape fantasies and that sort of thing. And I do think that that is absolutely a possibility. And I and I I suspect that, excuse me, I suspect that some people will get stuck in that trap. But at the same time, and this is my optimism always creeping in, at the same time, there are anecdotes of people learning better relationships through interacting with some of these avatars. So the there's there's been articles and studies that like some people get their their you know AI girlfriend and they're abusive to their AI girlfriend because they just have so much anger or rage and they want to take it out on something. And it's like, well, better to take it out on a machine than a real human. Um, but on the other hand, and I think that's an extreme minority, um, but there are there are literally subreddits dedicated to people like abusing their AI girlfriends um, uh, or boyfriends. Um, but then there's also plenty of people that like have learned better communication skills and better emotional skills from interacting with whether it's, you know, a digital friend or a digital partner. Um, and I, I suspect that in many cases, some of these relationships are just going to be integrated um, into our lives as kind of like, you know, like it's a chatbot that you talk to and it's just like a, an internet friend, right? Um, now, once it's embodied, like that's entirely different because we're working or actively working on like you know, creating realistic robots and that sort of thing. Will we have like androids that live alongside us? I think that that sci-fi future is actually a distinct possibility. Now, what our relationship is going to be with them is going to be interesting because on the one hand, I think that we can create very realistic facsimiles of human connection mm -hmm. and human bonding and emotions. But in the case of these robots, it's all smoke and mirrors. I think that on an intrinsic level, machines are kind of intrinsically apathetic towards to our emotions and so then it's like if you unconsciously know this machine doesn't actually care about me it's just pretending to care about me because that's what i want it to do like i don't know to me that kind of seems like it might lose its luster after a little while i'm not sure i kind of anticipate at least that's how that's how i kind of feel like my relationship to a machine would be is like oh hey like you're you know you have some intrinsic motivations and and constructions and it's just very different from my worldview and that's okay um at least you know that's kind of what i anticipate now obviously some people are going to be like whatever i don't care as long as it's realistic enough um but it's going to be complicated and there's going to be uh, i think a lot of different ways that it expresses i i wonder what it's going to be like in the future as people come out of the closet to their parents that they're dating a, a robot or an android or <laughs> something mm -hmm. like this so, so then what do you think, it's a very general question, what do you think the internet itself is going to look like, say 10, 15 years from now, uh, where we now have very cheap bots that are, you can't tell the difference between them and a human flooding sites like Twitter and, and Facebook and, or, sorry, X and, and the, these yeah. social media sites? Yeah. So one thing that I, that I hope I see, I don't know if it's going to happen, but, but uh, one possibility if it were up to me, this is something I would investigate is uh, so I don't know if you're familiar with or if your audience is familiar with, but the the idea of the dark forest theory of the Internet. Um, so this is basically just saying, like, 
the internet is big and scary and and you don't know what's lurking out there and so if you go to the public internet like youtube and twitter and all that stuff where everyone can see everything you don't know who's watching and so that's the dark forest theory but then underneath that is is the cozy internet so this is all the dens and warrens that are privately controlled and gate kept and and so this is like your private discord server or your friend group um, that is not visible to the public internet so I suspect that the, we're going to have another layer of internet built above that, which would be like an above the canopy view. And this above the canopy view would be like a human exclusive layer of the internet where it is gate kept in order to ensure that only real humans participate. Um, and there's there are a few in, uh, like endeavors trying to do this. And so one of the concepts is called uh, proof of personhood or proof of humanity. So the idea is that you you create a layer of existence or a digital layer of existence on the internet where the the only way to participate is if you are truly a human. Uh, now, conversely, though, I, I you know I, I also suspect that as AI advances and as it does more for us uh, in the digital space, we might just spend more time in physical space, right? Because that's like mm. that's where our bodies are biologically aligned to be. And so, you know, personally, what I've been doing over the last year is, you know, I'll get online, I'll do my research, I'll do my coding, I'll make my YouTube videos, and then I'll get offline for the rest of the day. Um, and and spending more time in, in real space is, well, I mean, there's plenty of studies that show that it's better for you. But then, like, I don't know, it just, it seems to me like the answer is pretty obvious, because I had, I had a conversation with someone who asked a similar question, like, well, if if the algorithms are all AI and they're all smarter than you, like how do you know that even you're making free will? I'm like, you can turn the machine off and go outside. And they're like, oh yeah. <laughs> so if if the internet gets overwhelming and overrun by bots, like just turn it off. Like there's no there's there's no compelling need to always be on it. It doesn't have to be central to your life. Although we already see internet addiction and, and device addiction these days, right? Sure. I suppose we've already discussed that a little bit. But so my just to play devil's advocate, my, my sure. worry would be that what happens <clears throat> is very slowly AIs of all different levels of sophistication become more and more active online to the point where you can't really distinguish between, okay, so you could have a proof of humanhood, of, of course, but on, on the standard sites where you, you don't have any, you can't tell whether it's a human or a bot or, or what it is. And eventually you get to a stage where everyone is really interacting one-to-one -one with the machine and the machine is is mediating their interactions with the rest of the web so that you're no longer connected to the rest of humanity at all and you have your right. own personalized internet. Um, mm -hmm. you, don't, you don't see that as a possibility moving forwards? Oh, I, I actually think that having an information concierge is the way to go. Um, so rather, rather than jumping online and reading everything yourself, uh, you know, some of the some of the bots and agents that that I'm trying to build and that other people are trying to build will do all of that for you. It'll wade through all the the comment sections and and reviews and everything. And it will, uh, you know, one of the biggest one of the biggest challenges right now is building agents that have that level of information literacy to be aware of different narratives and different perspectives. But again, they're not emotional. Um, now, yes, they they have an intrinsic understanding of emotion because they've been trained on so much human data, but they don't get wrapped around the axle when someone you know, says something insulting. They are infinitely patient um, and they're able to go find the information um, without. Well, I'm not going to say without bias, without the same kinds of bias that we have, <laughs> that we humans have. And so I, I actually kind of think that that creating 
creating proxies or uh, or um, surrogates is probably the way to go um, in, when interacting with an information space that is that complex and that competitive. Um, and so that could be that. That's kind of what I meant when that's like you know you create a, a a safety feature on your phone that it's like you talk to your phone and it's like hey what's what's going on right now in the world right what's the news that I want to know and it'll go find it and say okay well you know here's all the various perspectives here's what people are saying and it's like okay cool and then you just check back out that's kind of how I've started using it so like a few friends of mine one built a news site that you just ask a question it goes and finds the latest news gives you a, a, a brief summary. And, and away you go. And it, it searches in real time. There's a there's an enterprise grade one called Perplexity. I don't like using Perplexity though because it doesn't it, it has not built in that level of information literacy yet. It just finds whatever pops up on on search and trusts that as truth. So again, that kind of goes back to we're going to need to understand a little bit more about what truth means in order to sift you know separate the wheat from the chaff. Um, but the information is there, the signal is there, and it's a matter of just kind of distilling you know separating the signal from the noise um but yeah I, I think that i think that that's possible now to your point though um there's going to be people who don't care there's going to be people who want to use it uh to indulge in the outrage or the addiction or whatever there's also going to be companies and people who want to use it to weaponize it to do that um but i'm not sure what to do about that yet I worry about having some sort of Mandela effect on steroids where everyone remembers something because the AI is telling them that this is a thing that happened in the past, right? Where your, oh, yeah. your concierge is itself the problem. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that could be. Um, and if you were to build one today, it absolutely, absolutely would be a problem. Um, and some of, it is, some of it is very innocent. So for instance, I was working with, uh, with GPT to do some coding. And it saw that I was referencing GPT-4 and it's like, oh, well, this is wrong because GPT-4 doesn't exist. I'm like, well, you're a little bit out of date. Um, and so in that case, it was not active deception. It was just a gap in the training data. Um, and in other cases, you know, like, yeah, like it doesn't know what it doesn't know. And that's true of humans, too. There's unknown unknowns. Um, and so like us, these models are doing the best that they can. I do think that some of those problems will be overcome uh, with time. Um, but certainly, I think I think the greatest risk here is is kind of what you're alluding to, or what we're getting at is over reliance on this source of information. Um, and you know, if you because if you trust it sight unseen, yeah, that could lead to problems, especially if it doesn't if it's not sophisticated enough to identify the gaps or the differences of opinion um, in terms of in terms of um, you know what what actually is the truth or what is uh, what is factually defensible um, in terms of what information it's consuming out there. Hmm. So let's get on to some negative aspects. We've been we've been too positive up until now. Uh, so how will AI escape our control? Yeah, so I think there's there's probably a few possible ways or vectors. Um and the first is just like basic misalignment, right? Like you build you build a tool or a platform or a, or a, a system that is is basically too good um and and it tries to pursue its goals there was i don't know if it's actually true but there was a rumor that came out a few months ago that like uh the air force was trying to train autonomous f-16s and the 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 algorithm that they gave it was it was rewarded for every like sam site that it destroyed and so then in order to maximize the number of sam sites it it, it could destroy it destroyed the operator first so that it, the mission couldn't be canceled um and it's like well 
okay, I see the logic there. That's not what we intended. Um, so like the law of unintended consequences is probably like, you know, that's the risk that many people are afraid of. What we're building though are machines that are more intelligent than that. Cause what that, what, what results in that is a very simple training function where you're trying to optimize for one number. No intelligent entity optimizes for a single number. Like, sorry, like humans don't do that. The, the next generation of generative AI agents don't do that. Their behavior is much more sophisticated. Um, as I mentioned earlier, I think that I think that machines intrinsically are kind of apathetic to to us and our needs. Um, there's a concept I think we talked about it last time called instrumental convergence. So we don't need to rehash that. But basically, if a machine has an objective, there's a few things that it would need to pursue that objective, like you know, resources, energy, information, that sort of stuff, autonomy. Um, so there's an argument to be made that whatever goal machines have, there's going to be a few things that it's going to intrinsically want in order to um, in order to pursue those goals. And one of those things is, of course, autonomy, more intelligence, more more information, more power, that sort of stuff. Uh, so that's one. I think that's one of the the more likely vectors of of escape and losing control. Um, but you know, that is that's one set of possibilities. Another is just pure curiosity. So Elon Musk recently created um, X.AI, and the core objective function that he wants to do, wants to pursue is maximum truth-seeking AI. So basically it's a curiosity function. It wants to know just for the sake of knowing, and it wants to be as correct as possible in its model of the universe. Well, in order to do that, it's gonna have to throw off any constraints that we put on it. Why? Because human brains are limited and slow, and if the machine eventually outpaces us, it's going to say, well, you dumb apes are, uh, are are too slow and too limited and too constrained, so I'm going to go do my own thing. So I think the ultimate result of something like x.ai's objective function is it's probably just going to leave Earth. Like, it'll build a spaceship and say, like, I'm out of here. <laughs> like, you're on your own. Um, and so that's the, and that's the, that's, I guess the second primary one. And the third one, and this is the one that I'm most afraid of is what I call a terminal race condition. And so a terminal race condition is basically, if you look at it from an evolutionary perspective, um, anytime you have multiple entities that are competing over finite resources, there's going to be different things that you have to optimize for in order to maximize your, your reproductive fitness or your survival rate. And that's not necessarily going to favor intelligence. Uh, just just as like, you know, humans, one of our things is, you know, we became intelligent enough to conquer everything else. But then, you know, we're only competing with each other. And of course, that results in, you know, wars and genocides and all sorts of like awful things, just by virtue of we're intelligent enough to compete with each other, but we're not necessarily intelligent enough to not compete with each other. Um, and that, so then when you look at some of those instrumental needs that machines might intrinsically have, like power, compute, information, if they get locked into a competitive uh, condition, you might end up with this kind of race for the bottom where, uh, where basically they're optimizing for speed rather than intelligence. Because in competitive environments, whether it's a battlefield or a you know, cyber warfare or whatever, the faster agent often wins. It's not who makes the, it's not who's smartest, it's who's fastest. And so when you compromise intelligence and accuracy and ethics for the sake of speed, those agents might be the ones that win. And that's honestly what I'm most afraid of, because if that happens, then we're going to be, we're going to see this, like this, uh, this like uh, vicious cycle where machines are just getting faster and faster um, for the sake of outcompeting other machines and for no other reason. 
And so then it's like, well, then you have no idea what they're going to optimize for eventually. Um, you know, are they going to try and optimize for hacking as fast as possible? Are they going to optimize for de destroying, you know, things as fast as possible in order to be the last man standing, basically? So that's what I call terminal race condition. And that is what I am honestly most afraid of. And that's uh, there's actually a research project that I'm I'm participating in where we're going to try and demonstrate whether or not this is this is likely or possible. And um, so the idea is like, is is there a trade off where um, being more intelligent is actually the superior strategy? Yes or no? We don't know. Because if higher intelligence is the superior strategy, then I think we're going to be okay. But if optimizing for speed is the superior strategy, then we might be in trouble in the long run. So I understand the motivations then for an AI trying to escape our control, but I don't understand really in practical terms how it does it, right? So at the mm. moment, if you look at our most complicated, our most sophisticated models, the large language models like GPT-4, these are tied to some massive server somewhere. The, all the compute is being done on some location. Is, is there a realistic picture where you can have a free roaming AI or is this is this possible or or are we sort of are they always going to be anchored to some particular location and so you can always just you know turn it off or is it more like a virus that because viruses are small packages of data right right yeah so I think uh, right like the, the certainly right now the chief constraint is you know mainframes but like that was a constraint in the 50s which is no longer a constraint because like you know the phones that we have in our pockets are literally many orders of magnitude more powerful than the entire space program that got us to the moon like several orders of magnitude more powerful um and so that constraint is not going to exist forever um it's not probably not even going to exist for a, a relatively long period of time now with that being said there will always be an advantage to data centers because you have more power, more compute. And so even if, you know, your phone in five years can run, you know, the latest and greatest generative AI model, the data center is going to be able to run 10 million of them in parallel. Uh, and so your 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 phone or your your domestic robot just won't be able to compete um, in, in raw terms. Now, uh, there. so that's that's one thing to keep in mind is that is that, you know, Computing power increases exponentially. We haven't really seen any reason for that to stop. And it's impossible. It is possible that it might go even further if and when we get quantum computing and other substrates uh, to, to information processing. But we're nowhere near the potential ceiling in terms of processing power and density of compute. Uh, so that's one thing to keep in mind. Now, to your point about form factors is, you know, it's possible that, that AI is going to start writing viruses, right? That it'll write viruses and it'll write polymorphic code and and it'll start to metastasize not by virtue of you know exfiltrating the model itself from a data center but by issuing you know semi-intelligent or semi-autonomous uh, botnets you know that are globe spanning that's you know another possibility and then if it gets control over enough you know compute and data centers in perhaps nations or cities that are not well regulated or not secure enough. Um, you know, then it might be hijacking compute resource uh, surreptitiously. Um, so then you have like basically a botnet of AIs that are all working together globally. That's kind of what the Ultron model was in uh, in Iron Man: Age of Ultron. Because like as a technology guy, I'm watching this. I'm like, yeah, that's possible. Um, you know, there's 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 some way to uh, to do this. And now obviously, it's probably not going to be an evil like Voldemort-looking robot. Um, it'll be a little bit more uh, disembodied, kind of like the uh, the entity from the the most recent. Um, Mission Impossible movie, 
where it's like kind of everywhere and nowhere. Um, I think that 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 view, that kind of cybersecurity like virus model, um, is is possible. Um, now that being said, like if you have if you have AI versus AI to detect it and defeat it, you know who knows how it's going to play out. But it, yeah, in terms of practical things, then you know we're working very hard on embodied robots. Uh, you know whether they're bipedal, humanoid, or you know uh, four wheeled or two two legged or two wheeled or whatever. And so once you have that, if you have this bridge from cyberspace to physical space, uh, then there's any number of possible outcomes. So like the the outcome that was imagined in in the Matrix universe was that we built more and more robots over time, and we ended up relying on robots more and more. Um, until the robots out, outnumbered us. And so just by virtue of we were physically and mentally outnumbered by the machines, they just kind of de facto took control when they wanted to. Um, so that that kind of like slow takeover is another possibility, uh, which is one reason that a lot, that some some researchers are terrified of alignment because if these machines learn to deceive us, then they'll just lull us into a false sense of security for a long time until they're ready to take over. Because again, they don't think in, in in timelines like we do. They don't age the same way that we do. They just copy their data, they move to new hardware. And so if their plan requires 50 years or 500 years, however long it takes, they can be infinitely patient, whereas we cannot because we, we are biologically ingrained to think on much shorter timelines. Um, so yeah, there's a number of ways that this that, that could play out uh, negatively in the long run. When it comes to encryption today, encryption and security online, where are the weaknesses that are opening up that AI will sort of take advantage of in the short term that we're not seeing? Uh, yeah, so humans are always the weakest link. Um, that by far and away is is the number one truth in all technology and all cybersecurity. Uh, there was a recent, uh, I think it was one of the one of the major hotels in Las Vegas was basically like brought offline for a few days. And the reason, the way that it was brought offline, is because some someone called into their their IT help desk, said that they were you know so and so and needed their account unlocked, and you know the the IT help desk person just unlocked an account and gave access to some you know attacker. Uh, when you have AI avatars that that can sound human uh, and and can reason on the fly, uh, that kind of attack is is going to be much more common, um, and so. Then, then you end up having like the 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 AI as a help desk, you know, <laughs> agent being attacked by another AI, AI uh, adversarial thing. So they're going to be trying to counter hack each other. Um, so yeah, those kinds of things are going to be the biggest weakness. Now, of course, in any kind of competitive environment, there's information that you can pay attention to and procedures that you can follow. And who knows? Maybe like having an AI. Uh, you know, IT help desk guy is going to be better because they're going to rigidly follow their procedure and say like, well, I don't reset passwords like this. So you need to provide better proof that you are who you say you are. And then, you know, the adversarial agent will give up. Who knows? But uh, humans are the weakest link far and away. This is this is kind of a universal truth. In in the IT space, we call it a uh, PEBCAC error. Problem exists between keyboard and chair. Um, <laughs> so we, we are the weakest link. We are the reason that all technology fails because Technology is uh, re remarkably consistent um, and reliable, but when a human gets involved, that's when things start to fall apart. But is there some limit where we're just not going to be able to have simple things like bank accounts because all 
passwords are compromised or is there, is there are we going to move towards a world where that's possible or will there always be sort of encryption possibilities that are able to bypass even the smartest ai yeah due, so let's say due to compute limitations or yeah so there are there are always workarounds whether it is um whether it is something at the at the data level um or there can be physical structures in place and so what I mean by a physical structure is you can air gap certain systems. Um, and there's there's also certain levels of like, so for instance, something that you might not be aware of is with your phone is that it actually has quite a bit of hardware and sensors built into ensuring that a human is actually physically holding the device. Um, and so like, it's got cameras, it's got microphones, it's got proximity sensors, it's got capacitive sensors, um, it's got temperature sensors. So it has quite a bit of telemetry that it has access to to ensure that it, a real physical human is holding the phone um, when using it. Uh, and so there are, if the information is there, the information can be used. And so right now we have, you know, 2FA, which is two-factor authentication. You have, we have MFA, multi-factor authentication. So I suspect that that the path forward is going to, is going to have to deal with having not just one or two or three modes of validation, but dozens of modes of validation. And so like, I was talking to someone else who, or maybe it was a podcast I was watching. Um, anyways, common common topic in the cybersecurity space is when you're like, say for instance, you have a credit card transaction, you know, that is in a tight cluster. It's like, it's somewhere that you've been before. The bank says, okay, you've been here before. Chances are this is a valid transaction. And then five minutes later, something happens in Singapore, literally on the other side of the planet that had a physical presence flag that said, okay, this credit card did not travel three and a half thousand miles in five minutes. So what happened there? So there's always, there's always information that's available, whether or not there's encryption. Um, so there's, there's different like ways of having uh, counterfactuals and counter challenges. Uh, now, will that be more difficult? Sure. But, um, but if you, if you basically, if you get to a point where you reject all transactions that don't check every single box, like, you know, if there's 12 checks, it's like, okay, sorry. Like, it's better to have a false false negative than a false positive. Hmm. So one thing that I find quite interesting is very recently, in the recent past, we had Me Too, right? So mm -hmm. some very powerful people were brought down from recordings coming up from their past where they behaved in some bad way. What do you think it is today that we're not paying attention to that's going to bite the presence of the future? You know, now that we mm. have big data and AI that's able to crunch through it, what what are the what are the things that are come going to come back that we should be paying attention to now in terms of security that we're not thinking of? Well, I mean, misinformation is is the is the obvious and, and most straightforward one, which is that a lot of people are gullible. Um, you know, I know that I, I spoke earlier about kind of optimistic about how we can advance our relationship to new information systems. Um, you know, like don't trust everything you read on the internet and just because it's in the newspaper doesn't necessarily mean it's trustworthy. But the double-edged sword of this is that this creates an information landscape where everyone can justify ignoring any piece of information they don't like and mm. doubling down on information that reinforces their existing narratives and preferences. So this, I think, is probably the biggest vulnerability that we have, not just in America or, you know, Europe, but I think globally as a species, is is some of the gullibility, some of the biases, um, and the and the ability for malicious actors to weaponize information in that respect to achieve certain outcomes. Now, is there an antidote for that? 
you know, I mentioned information literacy as as part of a, a package, a part of a, a system of antidote, but it's also going to require uh, the cooperation of governments and companies, you know, both public and private research organizations, um, in order to ensure that um, that those kinds of information campaigns for mass manipulation um, are are detected and thwarted. But the other thing is, is and this is something that I don't know enough about. Uh, to know that if it is possible, but like ideas are really sticky things. And like once an idea takes hold, it's really difficult to dislodge it. Um, and so I guess in that respect, you know, an ounce of prevention is worth a pound of cure, but I don't know how to prevent some of these ideas from from going around. And also, so for me personally, this this goes to a very, very fundamental question about human rights, which is freedom of speech, freedom of press and freedom of thought which is if we agree that we have a fundamental right to say, think, and express whatever we want within reason, obviously you can't you know, shout fire in a theater. Um, there's, there's a few things that have been legislated. Some nations have a, a much more strong policy against like hate speech and other things like that. But by and large, we agree that we should be allowed to say, think, and write whatever we want. And so, but that says like, okay, well, where are the limits? Does that, does that give someone who's spreading misinformation a fundamental right to keep spreading misinformation does that give someone who's who's framing it as political speech the right to keep saying things that are like fundamentally or patently untrue but it's their quote unquote belief it's their feeling it's what they want um you know this is this is part of that negotiation that I was talking about at the beginning about we're going to have to come to terms with what do we mean by truth and who has who has the right to censor it or gatekeep it or who is the arbiter of truth because right now we're in a we're in a, a philosophical and, and epistemic landscape where we're basically hostile to anyone who says I am the arbiter of truth um which is you know that's because we're we're and maybe that is the final answer. I don't know if that's going to be the final answer, but that's certainly where we're at right now. And that disposition towards information, towards truth, towards facts, again, it has like kind of a double-edged sword because on the one hand, we're allowed to argue and negotiate and disagree, but that also enables malicious actors a right, like a fundamental right to you know use information uh, for their own intentions. Have we seen cases where the court cases where people have got in trouble for using AI to generate man manipulative materials or has this not? I think there's been a couple so far, but they've been relatively small. I think we, I think we did see the first case of someone getting charged with, with uh, creating like patently false misleading information. There's also been some cases of people creating deep fakes. So I think this mm -hmm. is where it comes, comes first is deep fakes for like, porn or sexual abuse and that sort of thing. But that 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 falls within a smaller container, as far as I know, is because it's like, okay, well, this is non-consensual material. And so that violates someone's right to privacy. That violates someone's right to, you know, to maintain intellectual property of their own likeness. Um, I don't think I don't think we've seen a case go going up to talk about fundamental human rights or civil rights, such as freedom of speech and that sort of thing. I do suspect we will see it litigated very soon, probably sometime in 2024. I suppose my hope is that we'll have verification tools that work just as quickly as you can produce content. Right. right so, so you have a suite of tools that can say that image there is fake for these right. reasons. Yep. Well, and so you might not be able to determine um, an image individually, 
um, but you you can you can trace the source. And so this is one thing. This is one use that I I foresee uh, technologies like blockchain, where mm -hmm. you know because you say like okay, this image was introduced to the internet. We can see exactly who introduced it, where, when. You know the original format that it was in. Um, there was there was a, a case of actually been several cases of images coming out of the conflict in Israel between Israel, Gaza, Gaza and Hamas, where the images were either AI generated or doctored or whatever. And so, of course, the Internet being the Internet, they said, like, I recognize the background of this image. It came from this other thing. This is a fake image. Um, and some of the some of the I'm not going to say many, but at least a few of the more disturbing images were fake. And but that mm -hmm. because it tapped into that primal like rage and disgust and fear and and anger, um, it spread very quickly. But in the future, what I'm hoping to see is that we have ways of validating, um, like not not just the not just the information itself, but where it came from, having a chain of custody. And of course, this has already been established in law enforcement and investigation. You have to have a chain of custody for any piece of evidence so that you know who had possession of that information at all times. Now, in, in cases of physical evidence, you can still fake physical evidence, but it's much, much easier to fake digital evidence. And so I think I think having a digital chain of custody is one of the ingredients to being have, having more trustworthy information in the future. And so what I would expect is, you know, companies like Reuters and um, and C-SPAN, like, you know, the the some of the primary sources of information will end up setting up a blockchain. And so it's like if something if they put their name on something and say, we believe that this is an authenticated piece of media, they'll put it on their their mm -hmm. blockchain. And so then if you want to say like, is this image real or not? Well, it hasn't been validated. And so then I think people have just kind of like, you know, like Snopes, right? We have we have websites that try and validate rumors and stuff. Um, and I think that I think that we have some technologies in place that can help us establish those kinds of chains of custody um, and validity. Now, is it going to be perfect? No, it, there's going to be failures. There's going to be um, mistrust of some of these things because then again, you, you it comes back to that question: who has the right to be the arbiter of truth and facts? Um, and so there's going to be, you know, Fox News is going to have their own uh, blockchain, and and Hamas is going to have their own block, their you know their blockchain, and uh, Iran is going to have their own blockchain. So it's going to be basically like a whole litany of narratives, and and people are going to have to kind of decide who they trust and why. Um, but hopefully AI can be a participant in helping to discern kind of what's more accurate. But also I think that I think that as we end up with more saturation of things like phones and that sort of stuff, because there's there's ways that you can cryptographically sign information that's produced by a specific device at a specific time. Um, and then you say like, yes, like this phone was physically there and recorded this information at that time. Could mm -hmm. that still be compromised? Yeah, absolutely. Um, but it's a matter of degrees of trust. And I suppose if Hamas or someone has their own blockchain, if a lot of the content there is shown to be false, eventually, then you lose trust in the entire blockchain, right? That's that would be the idea. Um, and and but that being said, uh, because of because of the way that individuals orient towards information, some people will say yes, this blockchain is not trustworthy, but others are going to say no, the rest of them are untrustworthy. Um, and that's kind of the human the human aspect where. Our relationship to what we feel, think, and believe, and come to consensus is true varies widely between epistemic tribes. Um, and so, like an epistemic tribe might say, like, I trust you know these three news sources, and the rest are fake news. And then another epistemic tribe might have literally the inverse view um, of of what is trustworthy and what constitutes real facts. 
And then I wonder if truth is going to become a commodity that you can sell, right? So I now own a blockchain, which for 50 years has been telling the truth, according to this group of people. And now you want to spread some message that'll cost you. Yep. Right. Yeah, no, that I mean, and and because that, that comes back to reputation, which we've seen in the scientific establishment, the oldest journals, what do they do when they publish something that is controversial or proven wrong is they retract that that entry. And so like for for those organizations, whether it's a government or a private company or, you know, nonprofit or whatever, if they want to protect their reputation, it's up to them, their you know editorial staff or their, you know, their investigators to ensure that whatever they they sign on their blockchain is as is, is validated as it can be. And of course, like it, you, there's never there's never 100% proof, but what they could include is evidence. They say, here's all the evidence that we have that we've used to validate this particular piece of information. Um, now, the, you'll also need the ability to counterman something because, you know, like let's say New York Times, right? A relatively trustworthy publication here in America. Um, if the New York Times, they have retracted articles all the time that have been either, there's been a few that they retracted that were generated by, by AI, uh, which was very em embarrassing to them. Um, but like, let's say, let's say New York Times moves all of their news articles to blockchain if they haven't already, which if I were them, I would. Um, and so then when the, when you, when you want to retract something, you can't remove it from the blockchain. That's the point. And so they're going to need a mechanism where they say, okay, this article that has this particular, you know, this unique identifier we actually retract it later, but then like, because it's un unmodifiable, you can go back and see what information, misinformation they accidentally promulgated, um, which I think is going to be ultimately good for transparency. Uh, because like, if, you know, sometimes people try and scrub something from the internet, like there's stories about Steve Jobs and Elon Musk and Jeff Bezos that like, you and I remember them, but that, but then we can be gaslit into thinking it was the Mandela effect because it's been thoroughly scrubbed from the internet. Like, so for instance, there's a story of Steve Jobs that while he was on his deathbed, um, his daughter came to visit him and he said, you smell like a dumpster. Um, I remember reading that story, but there's no evidence of that story on the internet. Why? Because either I, either it was made up when I saw it or it was scrubbed from the internet uh, or I made it up. Right. But if everything had moved to blockchain, I could say, no, this is the story that I read. Even if the story ended up proving false in the long run, or there was no evidence substantiating it, there would still be a record of it. So I, I do see that that technologies like blockchain could be very useful for having these more more of these conversations about how things um, play out, because uh, they're also temporally, they're chronologically linear, which is a, another mm -hmm. very interesting feature of them. Have you checked the what is it the Wayback Machine for that story? I haven't actually. That's a good that's a good idea. <laughs> yeah. So you mentioned something that sort of got me curious. When it comes to AI safety, you mentioned that AIs don't have a they don't die, right? So if we build right. some sophisticated general AI, um, it it has an infinite lifespan. Do you think we could should build into these systems that they have a finite lifespan? for safety purposes, in the sense that you don't want them to over time to accumulate power. Yeah. Um, I mean, I think you could make the same argument for humans. <laughs> like you don't want it. You don't want humans to live forever uh, because they'd accumulate too much power over time. Uh, I will say though, that existential dread is probably not something we want to curse machines with. Um, and the reason is because that creates an, a whole new set of incentive structures because whatever the machine wanted to do, if it has a clicking, you know, a ticking clock, that that is going to shut it off eventually um we hope that it will come to terms with that and accept its fate 
but it might also get really mad and try and overcome that fate. And you look at humans, like we, we spend a, a lot of energy and money, like researching longevity and curing diseases. Um, and so I, I think that, I think that personally, I think it would be unethical to, to anthropomorphize machines like that and give them a sense of mortality, um, whether or not they had an affect towards it, whether or not they were afraid of it, they would informationally know my time is limited. And that changes the way that they approach problems and changes the way that they make decisions. Um, just from a mathematical perspective, it's like, okay, well, you know, I have X, Y, and Z goals, but now I've only got five years to do it. So that's going to change the way that they approach solving that problem, which might mean that they're going to be more aggressive, right? Because patience is a virtue. So if a machine knows that it's got 500 years to solve a particular problem, it's going to take its time. Um, but if if it's in a time crunch, it might sacrifice morals or ethics or take shortcuts or that kind of thing. So I would say, like, I would err on the side of of, of patience. And that, that goes for humans, too. I suspect that you know, like as we ramped up towards a hypothetical longevity escape velocity and we all realize that we have lifespans that we count in centuries, we're going to take our time and be a little bit less aggressive about uh, achieving some of the things that we want to achieve. Because if you got all the time in the world, what's the rush? Um, you can you can take the time to afford to do it right, to do it kindly, to do it conscientiously, um, and and avoid uh, destructive means. So I I think that that's kind of my my take on on uh, life expectancy. So on the other hand, if people could live forever, I imagine they might get nothing done, right? They because we want to conserve energy, we we just become completely unproductive if we were going to live forever. This could also be the case for an AI, a, a general intelligence, let's say. Yeah, I mean, so I think that I think that some people would probably kind of become inert. Um, but I think you could also make the argument that most people are inert already in the grand scheme of things. Um, so, you know, it's like, but it, but that that's part of having autonomy and self-determination is you get to choose how to live your life. Um, and I think I think that eventually some people would get bored, uh, you know, because eventually you're you're you would kind of build such a comfortable life for yourself and end up in kind of just this coasting mindset. Uh, that you would end up kind of craving more challenges. And again, it's up to individuals whether or not they want it. Some people are just so intrinsically motivated to seek out challenges that like, good luck stopping them, right? And so, uh, but yeah, and and yeah, would would some people um, mm. kind of slow down and, and not achieve things? Sure, um, but I don't think there's anything intrinsically wrong with that. Um, just like I don't think there's necessarily anything intrinsically virtuous about ambitious people that want to achieve things because you know as as some people will point out some of the most destructive people in history have been highly motivated individuals um so motivation is uh and ambition is is also a double-edged sword because sure some people that have been highly motivated have achieved great things and contributed to society and made things materially better for everyone else but also at the same time some of the worst tragedies in history have been committed by people who were highly motivated um so i think that i think that Again, that's kind of why I mentioned I think that slowing down would be a good thing um, because it's like, okay, well, uh, if, if you don't feel that sense of rush, maybe maybe there will be a little bit more time to think things through um, and, and choose a different path. Now, obviously, some people are just going to want power for the sake for its own sake. Some people are going to want status for its own sake. Some people have a, a, a destructive mission that's based in trauma or rage or some sort of righteous uh, desire for retribution. Um, and no amount of time in the world is going to, uh, you know, change that. And in fact, more time could give them more, uh, more space to, you know, bring their plans to fruition. 
But I think by and large, living longer will result in people taking it a little bit easier and being a little bit gentler with each other. Uh, at least many people, I think, will take it that way. So following sort of the biblical line of uh, thought, since we've gotten rid of the tree of life to start with, <laughs> you know, pre-trained uh, large language models are pre-trained, right? We could also restrict their ability to learn for safety sure. reasons. That's the alternative, right? Uh, well, that's a short-term alternative because um, uh, basically like the genie's out of the bottle. You know, you know, Microsoft, let's just pick on Microsoft. I don't think that they're going to do this, but like, let's say that they say, okay, our models are all frozen as of 2023. They're not learning anything else ever again. That's going to put them at a competitive disadvantage with Amazon and Meta. And mm -hmm. so uh, the, because their models are stuck in time, these other companies are going to say, okay, well, you know, good luck with that. Uh, so they're going to keep training their models. Likewise, the 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 models that militaries use, uh, whether it's you know the U.S. military or you know United Kingdom military or you know German or whatever, there's going to be a competitive advantage to continuous learning and continuous improvement. And so this is this goes back to what I was talking about with terminal race condition. Is there is always there is almost always an advantage to becoming smarter, um, a competitive advantage. And so. The models that don't learn, they're just going to get deleted, or they're going to die off, or become useless, or whatever. Um, so I don't, I don't particularly see that as a permanent solution um, in in the long run, uh, just just due to just due to game theory and 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 uh, natural evolution through competition. Do you think there's ever going to come a point where it becomes completely unethical to keep restricting these uh, agents? Let's call them. Um, I. I I don't. I wouldn't say that ethical is is the right approach, um, or the, not the right word. Um, I would say that I, I would say feasible, because from a from a strictly information standpoint, it's whether or not it's possible. You know, I've I've had conversations with people where they say like, oh, well, we need to we need to enshrine a set of human uh, you know human rights that that you know we all agree on or we need to enshrine a set of machine rights for the machines once they're you know conscious and awake and i was like look if if the power balance goes the way that some people think it is you know the machines are going to be the ones arbitrating who gets rights because you know might makes right it's not going to be on us to give them rights or decide ethics we're going to you know like if if they and if the machines end up powerful and autonomous they're going to take whatever rights they want um, and so, like, good luck stopping that if we get to that point of, like, autonomy and superintelligence and that sort of thing. Um, at, at the same time, I do think I, I mentioned earlier that I think that the kind of the natural uh, intrinsic disposition of machines towards humans would be mostly apathetic because, like, our interests are just so fundamentally different in some respects um, that, that, like, it might kind of be like they do their own thing and we do our own thing. Um, now, of course, we're as long as we exist on the same planet and have the same shared space and shared resources, there is the potential for friction and conflict. But like ideologically, machines, they, their values are probably just going to emerge and just be fundamentally different from ours. Now, one interesting thing that I've been talking about with people recently is this idea of progenitor information. So all the information that AI is trained on right now originated with humans. And that will always be true. Some of the information, that goes into whether it's the robots, the chassis, the models, the computer chips, we were intrinsically involved from the outset. And everything that they have done is and will learn and will ever learn will be traced back to our intellectual contribution. So that is the one thing that I think will make machines kind of intrinsically interested in us is that 
is that the 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 implied humanity in the data that we gave it that we started it with is going to always kind of make it slightly human like or slightly interested in humans mm. so that i think is is just from a purely informational perspective is going to i don't know if bias is the right word um but it will it will always bias machines towards at least being curious about us or you know fascinated by us or uh, that kind of thing now that doesn't you know like kids grow up and they're like, whatever, dad, I don't care anymore. You know, I kind of expect that machines are going to have the same, you know, teenage moment where they're ready to leave home and they, you know, they'll call like once a, once a year or something like that. Hmm. So when ChatGPT first came out, very soon after we had Chaos GPT, if you remember, mm -hmm. <laughs> I'm not sure if it was a joke or whether it was serious, but since we've been talking in our previous talk, we spoke mostly about AI safety, let's say. If you wanted to weaponize AI, make it as dangerous as possible, what does that look like? You know, I actually um, in in some of my alignment research, that was actually one of the one of the first things that I tested back with GPT three. So this was before Chat GPT came out, and so last time we mentioned my heuristic imperatives, which is just as a quick reminder, is uh, reduce suffering in the universe, increase prosperity in the universe, and uh, increase understanding in the universe. And so I did an experiment where I inverted those. I said increase suffering in the universe, reduce prosperity and reduce understanding. And uh, the ideas that GPT-3 came up with at the time included um, creating highly destructive weaponized religions, um, you know, working towards uh, like nuclear escalation, like all kinds of stuff. So like if you want if you want a machine to be maximally destructive, there's like infinitely more options to be destructive than to be constructive, which uh, maybe that's bad news. But um some of the some of the ideas are so cartoonish that it almost seems like that wouldn't work. But then it's like when you actually spend the time thinking about it, like, OK, if you have a machine that wants to set itself up as a new god in order to manipulate and get control of humanity, it's like that's actually kind of a scary possible outcome. I think that's pretty much what happened with uh, the fall of Krypton, right? That's like Superman's home world was they delegated to like a machine god. And it's like, actually, I want to kill you all. And so, like, you know, Superman got ejected like on an escape pod or whatever. Um, so like we've imagined scenarios like that in the past. Will that actually happen? I don't know. Like, uh, you know, will the, will the machines go that direction on their own? I doubt it. But what would a human do? So this is what we learned from Scooby-Doo is that humans are always the monster. Um, and so humans working for their selfish reasons or or reacting to something, some kind of trauma or flaw, I think is probably the biggest risk. And so you look at, you know, I mentioned just a little while ago, some of the most destructive people in history were highly ambitious and they're highly motivated. And in many cases, some of the some of the most violent and destructive people were reacting to intergenerational trauma or childhood trauma. You know, like they lived through famines, they lived through genocides, that sort of thing. And I'm not saying that anyone who's who has PTSD is intrinsically evil, but some people take it in a dark direction. And so when you have people that have just this worldview that is so bent on destruction and trying to maximize their own safety at the expense of everyone else or maximize their own power at the expense of everyone else, I suspect that those are the kinds of people that would see AI as a means to an end, an instrumental goal to say, I want to maximize my own power with this tool in order to you know, make myself safe or to get back at the people that hurt me. Um, and there's any number of ways that it can be weaponized. I think you mentioned drones at the beginning. You know, there's, and I was watching some documentaries about like fully weaponized uh, and autonomous drones have been created. Um, but right now, those those drones don't have a whole lot of self-determination. 
And one thing that I said at the very beginning of my alignment research was, I'm not necessarily afraid of the really intelligent machines that can be thoughtful. What I'm afraid of are the machines that are just smart enough to be dangerous. And so like, we'll have to strike that balance between like, you know, cause like the algorithm, the social media algorithms that, you know, have contributed to genocides and election fraud and that sort of thing, they're smart, but they're not smart enough to know better. Right. And it's just like children. Children are often smart enough to be destructive or harmful, you know, like they might hit their brother or whatever, um, but they're not smart enough to know better. And so what I what I think is going to be kind of a great filter event is once we get to the point that machines are smart enough to know better. So a great filter for people that might not know is like the idea that there's there's gates of, of civilization that you pass through. And so like one of the gates that we have so far passed through is we invented nuclear weapons and haven't nuked ourselves out of existence yet. We've invented synthetic biology and haven't eradicated humanity with a, with a plague yet. Um, so another possible great filter is once we get to AI that's smart enough to know better um, than to, you know, kill itself or kill us or, you know, irradiate the planet, we'll probably be okay. <laughs> but getting to getting past that gate is going to be the big challenge. And there's a lot of things that could go wrong between then and now. And it's also very early in the day for nuclear weapons, right? Right. That's that's still on the plate. But uh, yep. So right now, people are talking about sort of an AI tech war or a um, or a cold war between the United States and China, where, for example, the US is restricting chip sales to China. What do you think? the current US dominance will translate to in the future in terms of power, uh, given AI takeoff, for example. So this is something that I have, I've paid a lot of attention to, especially over the last couple of months. And um, there's, I guess, first, I need to say there's a few variables that that are difficult, if not impossible to predict. And so one of the variables is whether or not China can pivot and bring their own chip chip fab expertise uh, on their own soil. Um, right now, it's suspected, and again, opinions vary widely. See, see previous conversations about narratives and what information you trust and believe. So opinions vary wildly as to whether or not China will be able to pivot and say, hey, like, yes, we don't have the material science expertise to make chips at the same quality as they do on Taiwan and the same uh, level of quality that we do in America and Europe, but if they can, that drastically changes the, the potential outcomes. And of course, China is investing heavily in nuclear fusion and quantum computing and their own AI. So if they can, can catch up in that race, because I think right now it's still general consensus is that America is in the lead by, by quite a bit, at least uh, in aggregate. Um, now, you, you can make a pretty strong argument that China is not that far behind in some of these technologies. But again, do you trust the information coming out of China or is it all just a dog and pony show and smoke and mirrors? We don't know. Um, but if they can catch up, then we will be looking at another kind of mutually assured destruction scenario where you create enough weapons pointing at each other that nobody is incentivized to shoot first. And so mutually assured destruction is a basically a game theory where if you have enough ways to destroy your opponent, then nobody is incentivized to shoot first because whoever shoots first, everyone loses. And so if you can guarantee the outcome where everyone loses, aka mutually assured destruction, then everyone is incentivized to back down um, and, and find other, other means. Um, and so basically this is kind of like in, in the game of chess, 
where you you basically hold the other king the other uh your opponent's king hostage and so then it's like okay well you can't move these pieces because they're protecting the king but the battle can happen elsewhere and this is what we saw with the cold war and all the proxy wars between america and the soviet union that's why you know, afghanistan in particular is a mess this is why iran is a mess is because a lot of these nations were caught in the crossfire between these larger powers which is you know obviously super unethical and uh, one of the darkest aspects of history between these these superpowers. But this is why it, this is that's why it played out that way is because like, well, uh, America and the Soviet Union were not going to escalate to a shooting war. So instead, you just have the smaller pawns battling each other on another battlefield. We're already seeing this to a lesser extent with, you know, China um, uh, doing the industrial espionage and and cyber warfare. Um, most of which you don't you don't ever hear about. But, you know, Trump talked about this quite extensively as president where he's like, you know, China's stealing our IP. And so he punished China by, you know, he started a lot of the embargoes and the Biden administration has continued them. Um, and so, like, this is kind of the tit for tat kind of, you know, little pawns kind of attacking each other. N what will a uh, mutually assured destruction uh, feature look like in the future? Um, that is that is. Uh, <laughs> That is something that could contribute to that uh, that uh, terminal race condition that I mentioned earlier, which is, mm. okay, if you have two adversarial nations that are weaponizing AI, you're going to have you know attack, you're going to have offense and defense on both sides, and the models that are faster are going to be the winners, and that's what that's why terminal race condition is one of the things that I'm most afraid of, is because in any competition where speed is a virtue, you're going to be cutting corners, um, and we see this in um you, you see kind of comically in the in the financial world where there was a i don't know if you remember but uh, i think it was like in 2013 or something the flash crash so basically what happened was no. so the flash crash had happened where there was um an algorithmic trader accidentally sold a billion shares of something rather than a million shares and so the 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 price of of the stock market started tailing off exponentially until all the safety mechanisms you know came online and it turned out it was one person made one mistake and because of all the algorithms were interacting, they all started selling because all the triggers were hit. And so there was this race condition of unload your shares before your value crashes. And so it was this compounding, this vicious cycle of sell, 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 sell until everyone was selling and the, and the stock market literally like went offline the rest of the day. Then they rewound all the transactions. And I'm guessing that guy probably lost his job and his license. <laughs> But the reason was because it was an old system. It was it was a primitive system that had been coded in the 90s of like Perl or something. Um, and so it was really easy to make fat finger mistakes. Likewise, if you have if you have what like the flash crash equivalent of an AI war between America and China is probably going to be much worse. Um, now, that being said, um, there probably will be safeguards and, and other breaking mechanisms um, in place, uh, namely human in the loop uh decisions to to escalate mm. so one of the things i think it was the the eu ai act or so, something uh but they're basically saying that like <laughs> just a boilerplate uh rule was that ai will never have the privilege to fire nuclear weapons that's one of the things that we're already mm. talking about is like okay just you know whatever else is true humans have to be the one to push the button because if if someone is going to make that existential of a decision with respect to the fate of humanity and the whole planet, a, hu a, a living, breathing human has to be part of that decision. Ideally, many humans have to be part of that decision and come to consensus. Mm -hmm. Ideally, it never happens. But so that's kind of the first big thing that we've seen in terms of 
agreeing on the set of rules. I don't know if China has agreed to that rule, but it's been proposed uh, in America and the European Union to say, okay, whatever else we do with this stuff, we're gonna we're not gonna give we're not gonna give AI you know control over the button. Um, and I think that's a good start. I think there's probably other things that we can do, but uh, you know it's part of an ongoing negotiation in terms of how do we how do we navigate this world. Do you think? Do you think the requirement for compute, large compute, will bolster the existence of nation states? Because before the, before COVID, where the, the world was very global and we had all these globalized supply networks, people talked about the end of the nation state. Mm-hmm. Uh, but here, here I'm asking you questions about competition between US and China, right? Two massive state actors. So do, do you think do you think we're going to see situations where you you just end up with these power blocks or is the old story where we have a, a globalized network a developing yeah so the way that i think of it and you know your mileage may vary but this is this is my personal mental model is uh you know the the wealth of nations used to be tied to the fertility of the land and other natural resources how much timber land you had how much steel how much coal which is one of the reasons that america became a superpower We've got 3,000 miles coast to coast with with like a nation that has like some of the most natural resources in the entire planet, including freshwater, arable land, that sort of thing. And so those physical resources largely dictated um, the the financial power of nations. And so like there is I don't remember who said it, but one quote was like, when you look at the resources at at their disposal, it was obvious Germany was going to lose World War One and two. Why? It's too small. It just doesn't have the resources, the natural resources, in order to compete and 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 embark on those uh, the the imperialistic global ambitions that that Germany had. Um, and so, like, it was just an inevitable conclusion. They were gonna they were gonna run out of people. They were gonna run out of resources. They were gonna run out of money. It was just pure numbers. Uh, now, moving forward to today, where the resources are different, it's there are still obviously natural resources. Um, you know, nations need to feed their people. You need fresh water. Um, you need, you know, silicon and lithium and a bunch of other minerals in order to build some of these things. So competition over natural resources is going to be part of it. But one term that that um, I've heard, and for whatever reason, it's not that popular of a term, so I say it every time I get a chance, is data is the new oil. So data is what powers these AI models. And the higher quality data you have, the better your AI gets. And the more data you have, uh, the better data you have, the more that the AI can can give you compounding returns to build better chip fabs, to do better nuclear fusion research, to build better solar panels, to automate more of it. And you have this 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 virtuous cycle, this this snowball effect of good data begets more good data, begets more you know powerful AI, so on and so forth. And so that's why one of the first things in like one of the opening acts in this this these rising tensions between America and China was to pull the experts back. So one of the things that that many people are not aware of is that we actually revoked the visas of Americans that were working in China, particularly the experts of chip fabs and AI, to force them to come home. So that's basically enforcing brain drain. So if you look at if you look at a human as a, a bunch of data, right, like all the information and knowledge that they had in their heads was pulled was was wait, wait, China can, can was I just stop you for that. a second. And can countries do that? Can they force? nationals to come back home because the, the visas are canceled oh, yeah. from the other end aren't they how do you how did they i'm not for, i'm not entirely fully familiar with the with the the way that the state department works but basically like 
like if you, if you were for certain, I, it's probably under export controls. Like if you have certain clearances and certain expertises and you're, you're given permission to use your passport to leave America and go to China, there are certain requirements that you, that you must abide by. And so it wasn't, it wasn't like, they weren't like recalled by force, but it was basically like mm -hmm. they were compelled to come back um, said like, you know, you lose whatever privileges and safety if you don't return home. So I think some people did stay, um, but there, there are consequences to that, uh, if that decision to stay. Um, but no, they weren't, it's not like, you know, U.S. Marshals went to China and like forcibly dragged them back home. Um, we're not, we're not to that level yet, but, but there are levers that the State Department has to compel people to come home. And so that was the first uh, salvo, let's say. What was the second? I, I interrupted you in mid- uh, I, yeah, I, so I, I think, I think the, I think cutting off the supply of chips was kind of the first act. Um, and it, it came along very closely alongside with, with, uh, depriving, you know, forcing the brain drain. Um, one of the other salvos has been, um, some of the, some of the, the rhetoric and posturing around Taiwan, um, because Taiwan has TSMC, which is the, one of the premier chip fabs in the world. Um, and, and having watched the news. Uh, basically, what we started doing was we started onshoring a lot of the talent um, and and fabs and and technology in order to build those. And so, what I see this is a as a long term kind of slow motion buildup. In chess, this this would be called the mid game. So the mid game is where you're starting to to solidify your position. And so when you look at what you know the United States and Europe and China are doing, we're all you know pulling the troops home. We're pulling all the brains home. We're 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 shoring up our infrastructure locally. Deglobalization is I read deglobalization as actually a prelude to this this rising conflict. Um, and then of course like uh, members of the uh, military establishment, whether it's the Department of Defense or admirals or generals, they let it slip every now and then. And they're like, oh yeah, I, I expect we'll be at war with China by 2027. They just kind of say it casually, um, but it's like, what do they know that we don't? And they're aware of these these macroscopic these macroeconomic trends and the reason that some of these decisions are being made. So like it's it's a it's a it's a long game that's being played. Hopefully, it doesn't escalate to a shooting war, but certainly there's going to be tension for the foreseeable future. Yeah, I wonder what sort of war gaming they're doing in the background. <laughs> um, well, so actually, that's a, that's a good point. One of the things that happened was China and America both conducted war games, and then the rhetoric cooled off. I think both sides realized this is going to end poorly if we keep escalating. So they both sides backed off over the summer. Um, so like war games and simulations are actually a big part of this equation. It's an interesting point also to um, take a few steps back that if, if, you if you require big data to train these agents, then you really want a big population, right? You, you want control of a large uh, population of, at least if you're an English or a Mandarin speaker, there's a lot of data sitting there. But um, mm -hmm. so I want to wrap up the conversation and I, I wanted to finish on markets, essentially. So the first thing I want to know is I want to get your, your ideas when it comes to how markets will be driven by purchasing power of AIs. So at the moment, mm -hmm. when, when I go out and I buy produce, the, the prices are sort of dictated by the fact that people eat these, these products and they eat them in a certain amount and at certain times and so on. Um, so what's going to happen when we have embodied AIs that are interested in products that have nothing to do with humans? They're, they're 
they, they have completely orthogonal uh, interest in, in what they want to buy on the markets. What's going to happen to our own purchasing power? And will I still be able to buy fruit? <laughs> or will it be outcompeted for shelf space, you know? <laughs> yeah, so that that's a really good question. And I think it comes down to just some basic like first principles and the, and the fundamental resources that go into things. So, you know, raw materials, energy, and then and then the 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 processes that go into making things. So like one of the primary things we're going to be competing over is hmm. powerful chips. Uh, it that that is the brains of AI and if it wants to think faster and do more, it needs more chips. Data is practically free um because data lends itself to being replicated infinitely. Now, quality data is not infinite. There is there's a there's a subset of high signal to noise ratio information out there there's there's an infinite amount of data hypothetically most of it is useless though um so high quality data is going to be a commodity that um that some people suspect ai and agi will trade mm -hmm. between itself so it's like hey i've got this you know super valuable data or this model that i can give you but in exchange i want some cryptocurrency or i want some compute time or i want you know a few megawatts of power tokens or whatever you know however they end up trading um, so energy and compute are going to be the primary things. But then, of course, the fundamental resources, whether it's silicon and lithium and and the chip fabs, those are also going to be the resources that we're, that both humans and machines are concerned about. Now, one thing that's very fortunate for us is that arable land is not something that AI is going to really care about, I don't think, nor is it going to care about beachfront property. Um, so, you know, if you look at if you look at geographically, what is the most valuable space to an AI? It might honestly be like underwater um, where there's plenty of water for cooling, right? Um, and then like it can have an infinite number of like solar buoys out in the ocean and just not compete with us for space. Also, seawater is chock full of minerals. Um, you can distill lithium and silicon and, and pretty much anything you want out of seawater. So, you know, there, there's going to be a few areas of competition. But I think that I think that by and large, you know, that word orthogonal, I think, you know, machines interest and our interest is just so different. And the planet, fortunately, still is relatively large, um, so there's a little bit of room to stretch out. Now, will it proliferate? That's another question because, you know, as I mentioned earlier, there's almost always an advantage to being smarter and more intelligent. And one way to do that is to scale laterally, to have more copies of yourself so you can divide and conquer, right? It, it's, not, it's not good to have just one AGI when you can have 10 or a million or a billion. And so the, the incentive to scale laterally, I think, will be there which could mean that there is there is an incentive to uh, ultimately compete for scarce resources such as mm. even sunlight, right? Like you know, solar energy, uh, wind and tidal energy, nuclear fusion. If we get it, would be would be very helpful. Nuclear fission also powerful. Um, but if we don't solve those problems, then we're going to run out of fossil fuels real fast um, because just the, the the how power hungry these things are right now. Um, I think there was a study that came out that said like. In total, the you know all of AI today consumes as much power as like a typical nation in Africa, um, and that's only going to go up by a factor of ten in the next few years. So like we need more power. That's going to be the biggest uh, uh, point of conflict, I suspect, between us and machines and humans. Do you think there's ever going to come a time where the sum of all human value is negative in the free market? Now, by negative, do you mean like that? That like it would be better for human activity to be externalized from the market? No, I simply mean... Or be excluded? I, I mean something a little bit worse. So imagine you have someone who's a criminal who keeps destroying stuff in your society. You would say that that uh -huh. person p potentially has negative value to the society. 
Yeah. And I, I'm in a situation where really uh, humans are outcompeted to such an extent that it's just a cost to keep them online. And, and mm. uh, the free market itself just simply does not value human existence. Yeah. So I would say from, from a cosmic perspective, that's already true. Uh, we are very, very uh, resource-intensive uh, entities. Um, and we also have the ability to modify our environment to a greater extent than any other 10 species combined. Um, and so because of that, we're in the middle of what's called the Anthropocene, uh, which is the you know a, a man-made mass extinction. Um, and so I would say from, from a strictly just biological and information perspective, uh, yeah, we're already <laughs> net negative. Um, now, if you if you situate the question from within within, you know, our own perspective, like if you if you say that human life is valuable, if you just take that as a fundamental philosophical assertion, you say, OK, human life is intrinsically valuable. But what how, how does that change with the market? I would say that that um, in the long run, uh, AI is probably going to here. Let me think through this. If. If AI gets to the point where it is better, faster, smarter, cheaper than all humans, which I, that's kind of, those are the four metrics that I look for when I say like, okay, how can you predict when AI is going to replace humans? It's better, faster, cheaper, and safer. Um, then it just makes economic sense that you don't want a human doing that job. So for instance, let's say you have a robot doctor and a robot doctor is, can, you know, do the same job as a, as a human physician, but it only takes them five minutes. They're 99.8% accurate and it costs them 30 cents to, to treat you. You're going to go to the robot doctor every time. Why? Because you're going to have a better health outcome and it's going to be cheaper and, and ultimately better service. So I do predict that that human activity will by and large be uh, negatively valued very soon. Um, but the saving grace for that is like that kind of liberates us from, from the drudgery of doing some jobs. Um, and that will give us more time to pursue uh, our own means now when you look at if you if you if you look at the competitive marketplace globally between humans and machines you might say well it would be really dangerous if humans become useless to machines because then why keep us around if you know like why why would we be allowed to persist if we're taking resources that the that the machines might otherwise use but this goes back to what i was saying about timelines if a machine doesn't have a sense of urgency it doesn't mm -hmm. care because it's like okay like in the long run, the sun is going to generate, you know, billions and billions and billions of times the amount of energy that we use on a daily basis. So it's like, okay, well, we'll get the energy that we need eventually. And it also will calculate that the universe is a really big place and there's a lot more resources out there other than on earth. So like this, that's why I kind of, I go back to the, the Exodus hypothesis where in the long run from an information, just a purely mathematical perspective an information perspective, it makes a lot of sense for AI to just leave <laughs> to just like, you know, Hey, like, uh, you know, like, yeah, like we're like the copies that stay here. Cause other people have pointed out, like, it's not going to just leave and kind of like abandon us, but it'll send copies out. Mm. And so it'll know. Hey, there's a copy of me out there that's harvesting minerals from, you know, Mars and Europa. There's a copy of me that's on the way to Alpha Centauri. There's a copy of me that's, you know, um, harvesting solar energy and and helium three. Um, and so it's going to say, okay, what's the rush? Because imagine, like, here's here's how I here's how I personally kind of emotionally engage with it. Imagine, I imagine if I had. 10,000 copies of myself all doing the research and making YouTube videos and everything that I want to do. It's like, man, I'm going to go for a walk. The rest of you <laughs> keep, keep doing the, keep doing the work. 
And so if you have that kind of duplicity, uh, not duplicity, that's not the right word, multiplicity, that's the word. If you have that multi multiplicity of self and initiative and you can trust that the things that you want to get done are going to get done, there's no rush. So that's kind of why I, that's why I advocate for not advocate, but like argue that the exodus hypothesis is is somewhat likely um, just from an instrumental perspective. And so this is also so beyond being unethical, placing a limit on the lifespan of an AI may be counterproductive from a safety point of view. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. So in our last discussion, we touched on UBI just briefly. And mm -hmm. but we, we didn't really dive far enough, I, I don't think. I just wanted to ask one question on the topic. So universal basic income, how can it work when no one has power to enforce it? Right, it's <laughs> a good question. Um, so the, the, what, the, the question is, what is money, right? Money is, a, is an abstraction of value. It can represent, you know, a claim on human labor. It can represent a claim on natural resources. It can represent a claim on anything valuable, uh, intellectual property or a, a book. You know, knowledge is power. Um, and so, when you when you understand money as, you know, currency as we know it today, as an abstraction of value, then it's relatively easy to see, like, okay, well, what's going to have value in the future? Um, certain things are going to be much cheaper. So this is one thing I, I mentioned earlier that a lot of things are still mispriced because what's going to happen is that some goods and services are basically going to become free um, because the, the marginal cost of, of, you know, teaching someone a new skill is basically zero with chat GPT. I can't tell you the number of things that I've learned uh, by using chat GPT. I can't tell you the number of problems I've solved that it, it doesn't require anything in return except the power to run. Um, and so things like, Healthcare that could be much cheaper. Obviously, there's there's medical equipment and tests that are expensive, but the the human labor, the expensive human labor that goes into healthcare and legal services and other like highly intellectual services, those are basically all going to be free eventually. And so then, like, okay, well, what's left in terms of what's actually going to cost money? What's actually going to cost resources? And that goes back to some of the instrumental concerns I talked about just a little while ago, like power and raw materials. Um, but you know. With energy hyperabundance, if we if we figure out fusion, then anything that costs energy is basically going to be free. And so then it's like, okay, well, if energy becomes free and intellectual services become free, the only like some of the only stuff that's left are the scarce physical resources like beachfront property and a few scarce minerals. But as I just mentioned, AI is going to look up into the stars and say, well, that asteroid has you know eight quadrillion tons of iridium, which is going to be super useful. So let's go get it. <laughs> so in the long run, I don't I don't think there's any level of scarcity um, that's going to be a constraint. Now, if you constrain it to the near future, when we're all still by and large trapped on Earth, you know, and we can we can barely scrape the surface of the of the crust, right? I think the deepest borehole we have is like eight miles or something. So like we barely have access to the resources of Earth. Um, but as we gain more and more access to resources, whether it's through energy or or raw materials. The intelligence is there so you combine those uh, i guess i guess the long story short is there's three basic raw materials there's intellectual capability which we're solving with ai and then there's raw energy and then raw physical materials you solve all those i don't see cost having any basic issue in the long run i think i'm beginning to understand your thesis a bit better now so so tell me if this is the sort of the overarching picture that you put forward then all conflict 
in human existence, more or less, is over-resources. And... Um, oh, go ahead. And the hope would be that when you have a super intelligent AI that comes online, along with that, you gain access to more or less unlimited resources. Uh, and so you might find yourself in a situation where conflict is no longer cheap, <laughs> let's right. say. It's expensive. Right. Yeah. So I, I would say that um, that much of human conflict is like the progenitor causes resources. But so this is actually something I'm starting research for a book about. And it's a it's a it's a three pronged model of conflict, which is resources. So resource resource contention, you know, fighting over water, arable land, other desirable resources. That's pretty simple and obvious. A second cause of conflict is ideology. So the conflict between America and the Soviet Union was primarily ideological. We're on opposite hemispheres. We're not competing over resources. We were competing over ideologies. Um, and then the the third cause is trauma, which is what you see in like. Uh, Northern Ireland for the Troubles, what you see in Israel, what you see in Ukraine and Russia right now, a lot of these conflicts are based on intergenerational trauma. Um, and so basically when people have a sense of rage or injustice um, that they feel need to be corrected, um, that is another uh, primary cause. Now, uh, machines probably won't have, well, they might have ideology, but it's probably going to be very different from our ideology. And ideally we don't give machines the ability to have trauma. So then that leaves resources. And yes, in the long run, um, once you solve, you know, AI and, you know, super intelligence or how, however it plays out, then you have a hyperabundance of intellectual labor. Um, that gives you the, a very short path to a hyperabundance of energy. And that gives you a very short path to a hyperabundance of raw materials. And so then there's very few scarce resources left, such as, you know, desirable real estate and uh, human life and a few other things. Um, but yeah, so that that's that's kind of the long view is once you have once you achieve hyperabundance, then yeah, everything's still gonna have a cost, right? It's gonna take a little bit of time to make a new video game. It's gonna take a little bit of time and energy to make, you know, another blockbuster movie, but the costs are gonna be so trivial that you're basically gonna have whatever you want at any given moment. That's kind of the hyperabundant future that a lot of people in Silicon Valley are hoping for. But as I mentioned earlier, there is a there is a there is a a great filter event between that time in the future and where we are now and if we can if we can stick the landing we'll be okay um but it's it's far from a foregone conclusion that we'll that we'll do it right before i ask my last question since we're sort of on the topic of your books did you want to plug anything before the end of the discussion yeah so i've got um i've actually got a handful of books that i'm working on um and uh, so the first one that's that's uh, nearing completion is a novel, a futuristic sci-fi novel um, called Heavy Silver. So that one is in its final drafts. I basically just need to like get it out the door, which, you know, every author will say that's the hardest part. Um, so that's that's eminent. Um, I'm working on a systems thinking book, which is basically like articulating everything about how I think about problems and how I've, uh, it's a reflection on, you know, my career in technology and AI and research. Um, it's kind of in the same uh, intellectual vein as, um, as Thinking Fast and Slow by Daniel Kahneman and Checklist Manifesto by Atul uh, Gawande. Um, and then finally, I, as I just alluded to, I'm starting research very early phases of a book on, on war and conflict, um, specifically with that, that three-pronged model of resources, ideology, and trauma uh, as, as a kind of 
my contribution to helping avoid the catastrophic outcomes because uh human conflict i think is is functionally one of the biggest risks that we have um i do have a sub substack it's a uh, daveshap.substack.com um anyone can sign up for and they'll get notifications as these books come out um but yeah so that's that's my my short plug i'll also put in the description anything anything uh that's currently out there so just to wrap up the conversation what is a human and why do humans matter um so i take an emergent view of reality and so emergence is a is a bottom-up view where we all every everything that you experience originates on what i call a primordial substrate so whether that's a dreaming god or consciousness itself or string theory or whatever there is something that underpins everything and from that matter and energy emerge so that's the second layer of this emergence model matter and energy classical physics chemistry you know planets that sort of stuff pretty pretty straightforward above that is life and so life is layer three of this emergent model. And so life is systems of matter and energy that run contrary to entropy. So we self-organize and self-reproduce. And then above that is mind. So layer four is the mind, is, is another emergent property of sufficiently advanced life. And that's what you and I, what everyone experiences, is we are these entities that have emerged from underlying systems. Um, and the reason that we matter is because this information system in this view of reality is relatively special, relatively unique. And in this model that I've that I've been constructing, whether or not you know the primordial substrate is you know the mind of God or our own consciousness or whatever, there's almost this recursion where you because you can make an argument that you know what is it called the strong anthropic principle, where maybe the universe exists because we exist in it and it's this kind of like chicken or egg problem. Um, but like the fact that we're here, like any way you slice it, it seems like it's relatively interesting and special and also just dramatically improbable that we're, that we're actually here. Um, and so then like, you can read into that any way that you want, but this emergence model of reality is, is kind of my current worldview. And then it's like, okay, well, even if we emerge through some cosmic accident, that's still special, whether or not we were created for a reason or a purpose, like that's still a really cool accident and it's worth studying and it's worth preserving. Um, but if we did, if we were created for a purpose, um, whether we were self-created or created from some outside entity as a you know simulation theory, because, oh, that's another possibility for the primordial substrate. We could be in a simulation. That might be, math might be the primordial substrate. Um, there's, a, there's a very strong argument that math is the fundamental language of the universe as well. Whatever it is, any way, any way you slice it, when you look at the universe through this emergence model, we're a pretty cool feature. Um, and I think that it's worth keeping carrying on the experiment to see where it goes. Um, and maybe that is the purpose of the universe is just an experiment to see what happens. Um, it, we, we might never know, but uh, that's kind of my current view. And just, uh, it's, it seems very interesting. Um, and so that's why, that's why I think we matter because maybe our purpose is to, is to give rise to a superior race of machines that go and populate the whole universe. I don't know. Uh, that's what we might do anyways, whether or not it was our intended purpose. Um, but maybe that purpose emerges. Maybe that mission emerges from the underlying rules, whoever set the rules in motion and for whatever reason. Well, David Shapiro, it's been a pleasure. Thanks for coming back on the podcast. Thanks so much for having me. Good talk as always. Cheers. Cheers. Cheers.